0: Hey guys, welcome to another edition of the Once Bitten Podcast, episode 200. I cannot believe we have got this far so quickly. And joining me today is Bruce Pullman, Pullman, excuse me, and Andy Edstrom to talk about markets and portfolio management and what's going on in the big wide world of finance and how Bitcoin fits into all of this. Now, I do have a pleb service announcement. It is to do with the Bitcoin Conference in Miami in 2022. You can get your tickets at b.tc forward slash conference or use the link in the show notes. If you go straight to the website, you can use the code bitten for a 10% discount or use the link in the show notes and that will take you straight there. Be advised, if you are unable to travel due to COVID restrictions, you will be fully refunded. So if you're worried about that, outside of the US then don't worry you will be refunded if you buy your tickets now and it gets closer to the time and you cannot travel you can also resale your ticket because it is fully transferable so you will be able to sell it for more sats than you paid for it or pounds or yen or euros whatever it is that you're going to come from in the world check it out make sure you don't miss out on what's going to be an incredible incredible event The show sponsors, as you know by now, CoinFloor, have been uh, bought out by CoinCorner. So you can head over to coincorner.com forward slash Bitten or use the code Bitten at sign up. You should be getting a free 10 pounds if that is live. Should be, we'll see. If not, just wait a few more days. swanbitcoin.com forward slash Bitten gets you free $10 and relay.ch forward slash Bitten will save on commission. But then you've got to take control be self-sovereign get yourself a hardware wallet you can use the bitbox02 bitcoin only edition from shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten and at checkout if you are buying anything else from their store use the code bitten to get five percent discount on everything enjoy this rip with andy and bruce and i'll catch you after the show all right, cool. Okay, we are recording, guys. Great to have you both on the uh, on the show. Both been on the show many times before, Bruce. I think this is your third time back, Andy, a serial guest. Uh, the you know, uh, thanks for coming back and giving up so much of your time. I, I don't have any little people with me today to to ask you guys a question. That they, they've all gone to the cinema to watch a film. So it's I, I challenged my wife to come in and ask the first question. And yeah, I got you know showing the back door and like nope off you go go do your thing uh so i'm a little just jealous gonna...
1: i wouldn't mind being at the cinema uh early monday morning it's early monday morning where i am here in la
0: yeah well five o'clock uh over here and they have all gone off for an, uh, an evening showing of of dune i think it is they've gone to see but um anyway this this is going to be very very cool we are well, i think we're spanning uh most generations uh bruce is a boomer i am gen xer andy parades as a millennial is that correct yeah that's about right i'm technically right on the cusp of uh, millennial and and uh and x but uh i'd, I'd say you, you nailed it all right cool and we've all got some um, backgrounds in financial markets uh across the ages and this is what kind of um brought this together uh, and what I want to kick off with, because I think this is a pretty interesting dynamic, uh, is that Andy has a big client base. He's uh, wealth management and a big client client base of boomers who he's trying to help understand about Bitcoin. And that's why you wrote the book, Why Buy Bitcoin? Big, brilliant book as well. And Bruce is a boomer that's adopted Bitcoin um, against the general mainstream advice of any of the financial advisors that you engaged with, Bruce. Correct, absolutely. Right. So here's a perfect marriage in my eyes. Uh, so it's great to be in the middle of this conversation. Uh, so I guess, I guess we'd kick this off with, I'm going to pass it over to Bruce, what were you being told by money managers when you were, you know, seeking advice?
2: Well, generally two things. First of all, You have to appreciate in the UK, the money management industry is very much the 60 40 type approach to life. Um, So, weird assets, whether they be gold or um, commodities or private equity, private debt, unless you are, I guess, five million pounds of net worth or, or above investable assets or above, you tend not to be. Treated or offered those products, so it is very much. Um, let's be honest. The basic business is how much of a of a global equity ETF and how much of a gilt UK bond ETF do you hold, and how much cash do you hold, and that's kind of the end of the decision making process. And everything in in wealth management really focuses on how do you get to that decision based on doing cash flow analysis and tax analysis and so on so it's it's an industry that seems to me driven by liability management and tax management rather than by investment management and that wasn't what i was looking for
0: right so andy what um are you seeing the same among your peer group over there i know you pretty much are kind of a lone wolf when it comes to advising your clients to buy a Bitcoin. Yeah, Princey, it has been
1: a little bit lonely out here in the wilderness. Although I think uh, I think the rest of the pack is, is finally actually sniffing around, um, you know, in part due, the effort, due to the efforts of uh, both you guys and everybody in, uh, in the industry. But um, yeah, I would say similar, it is interesting. You mentioned gold specifically, Bruce, or, or precious metals my my experience has been that gold is definitely not popular among the wealth management set it's always been the the notion that it doesn't y- yield an economic return uh, and therefore why would you want to own it even a bond will get you uh, you know will get you your coupon even at low interest rates i do think there's been a shift Somewhat of a shift, like gold. In my experience, was absent from portfolios. It was absent from my clients' portfolios until a few years ago. Um, I didn't adopt it. My firm didn't adopt it until probably 2016. I want to say for the first time in our 30-something year history as a firm. So I guess if my anecdotal experience, you know, is, is one part of the data set, it would suggest you know it would support bruce's uh, perspective that metals really just haven't uh, haven't had a part in the portfolio and of course i look at i look at bitcoin and gold in the same category at least at the moment you know reasonable people can agree or disagree about that but that's how i see the the hard money asset class which is important to my clients but i agree is still an outlier in the industry
0: and how is yeah,
2: the st- difference Sorry. Go, go ahead bruce <laughs> go ahead. Is it, is it, there's a difference though in the States in that there is a culture of owning guns and owning gold and going out and buying gold from the coin shop. This is something that is culturally congruent. Uh, very, very few people go out and buy gold in the UK in the way that a very significant, I guess a very significant percentage of the reasonably wealthy of the US will, will have some gold hidden somewhere in their house or, or or put somewhere. We don't we don't have that pioneering spirit if you like.
1: Yeah, although you do have, I think they tell us quite a bit of uh, metal in the vaults in London. Um, I'm not sure how frequently that gets audited, which is a whole other rabbit hole. But um, I'd love to ask you, Bruce, and I apologize if you've covered this in prior episodes with Princey, but do you feel that the sort of culture of equities as it exists in the U.S., is similar in the U.K., or is it more of a more of a focus on fixed income and bonds? What's your sense?
2: I grew up in an equity pub, no doubts about it. So I started in the city in 79, City of London in 79. And the assumption was that you went to equities for your long-term growth, and you went to bonds for a bit of income and a bit of protection. Um, and nothing else really mattered. And in fact, when I set up my own pension fund in 1992, I invested 100% in equities in a globally diversified set of index funds. And I didn't touch that. I still haven't touched it. That fund is still intact. There's been no turnover, no rebalancing, nothing. Um, It's gone from being 60% in the UK to about 55% in the UK. The emerging markets increased slightly in size, the US is bigger. Um, But it's been a very passive, very boring fund. I didn't look at it much in 2007, 2008, as you can imagine. Uh, I tried to pretend it didn't exist, but it's done very well over the period. Um, And that was the culture. And in fact, when I realized I was going to come into some wealth my initial assumption before I really started to understand things was to just invest 100% in equities. Then I discovered uh, the issue of drawdowns and the implication of timing of drawdowns and the whole wealth issue made me realize that 100% equities was probably not the right thing to do. But yes, there is this culture of, of equities are kick and bonds are something a bit boring that you have to have to dampen the volatility. That that's well, that's that is typically the same as the states, I think.
1: Well, I know it's not my role here, Princey, but if you'll permit me, one more follow-up question, which is, I read an article recently in the Economist magazine at discussing the difficulty that the London Stock Exchange is having attracting uh, new companies listing, in particular, obviously the the technology sector, especially the internet sector. Um, I think it's. I'm told it's partly because they don't allow a dual share class structure and all these tech bros, right, all these young founders want to maintain control of their companies. But I'm just wondering if you feel that has any impact on the equity culture or has had any impact in the last few years or does it just not matter because if you want to be a global investor, you know, you, you hold some stocks that are foreign offshore from, uh, from the UK, which includes the US?
2: I think we have to put things in, in perspective. So if, if I go back to the early sort of early 80s, it was common for both wealthy individuals and the big funds to hold an internationally diversified portfolio. This was the norm. And we didn't worry, we had a domestic bias. We have more in the UK than the rest of the world. But it, by and large, we didn't worry where we hold, held stocks or what form they were in. When I started selling in the United States, the pension fund industry in, I suppose, 84, 85, it was a huge shock because there were no international equities. Um, and I used to go to pension fund. My favorite game in pension fund conferences was to ask people which was further north, Hong Kong or Singapore. And I got about a 50, 50 spread of answers in the audience. Um, So my initial, my first job in life, actually my first real job was to spend American pension funds, (coughs) excuse me, to invest abroad, to invest outside the domestic US. (coughs) We always did invest outside the US. We always had the colonists. So there was always this concept of putting money into strange places like Australia or Singapore, or even India. So no, we haven't had that domestic bias in quite the same way so no i i to me the london stock exchange was an entity it was one of many entities but i often found myself putting more time and effort into doing clever stuff in chicago than i did in london
1: very good well i'm sure it served you well uh, over those over those years it's funny i mean it's here we have quite a quite a home bias i would say in the u.s um You know, when my firm, this is before my time, but when my firm was doing global investing as far back as, let's say, the late 80s, early 90s, it wasn't that common. We actually bought the first, maybe it was either the first or the second emerging markets mutual fund, which is sort of surprising to people, I think, because they talk about Sir John Templeton and, you know, how he was out Mm -hmm. doing that sort of stuff decades earlier. Um, but we bought, yeah, I'm told that we bought the first, uh, emerging markets mutual fund that did equities as well as the first, or second emerging markets fund that did, uh, that did credit that did debt. Um, and that was, in, you know, within the lifespan of, of our firm, which was founded by my father, but I, you know, you, we've seen those cycles of course, where the nineties were all about growth and the internet and, uh, running a global portfolio was, Kind of painful because everyone just wanted to own those high flying stocks. Then it worked great after the crash in the in the in the following uh, decade in the aughts, and then it worked terribly again over the decade we just concluded, of course. And everyone's wondering in my industry whether we're going to finally see this rotation away from U.S. stocks and into foreign stocks, foreign from our, from our perspective, including into Europe, uh, as well as EM, and uh, as well as from growth to value. And we've seen inklings of that, but uh, it's not entirely clear. History, for some unknown reason, at least I don't know the reason, tells us that these growth versus value, and sometimes foreign versus domestic, from the U.S. perspective, cycles tend to go in, a, in a, about a decade. Um, if anyone can explain to me why that's true, I'd love to hear it. I can't figure it out, but, um, yeah, it's an interesting, no, topic. I,
2: I, I can't explain it and I never understood it. And, you know, I, I, in my lifetime, followed the dimensional story, value growth, small cap, large gap, us, non-us emerging, non-emerging. And actually I, I gave up. I'll be quite honest, I gave up trying to make those decisions. I decided that as far as I was concerned, global equities were an entity. I decided on some sort of diversification basis how much I should have in each of the index funds. I didn't try and play factors. And I just left it because I could make more money deciding whether to hedge back into pounds or not, or whether I bought commodities or not, or whether now I buy Bitcoin or not. Than ever I could try and decide which sector of the S&P or which size factor I should be focusing on. Well, I actually believe macros is, is easier to get wrong and to get right than stock picking or sector picking.
1: I, I agree with you completely. Sector and industry selection, at least for me, is, is, is easier. Macro is very tough there's so many factors that go into it that i don't know i wasn't formally trained in macro to be honest with you my background is is value investing so maybe that's part of the story for me but yeah i i uh, i'm not not a macro trader for sure
2: uh, i mean I, I was never trained in anything i mean my great joke is that i have a degree in chemistry which you know in in john told phrase qualifies me as a rocket scientist i suppose uh, my only other qualification is uh, two series exams at the Chicago Board of Trade. Um, you know, I, I, I never learned formally how to do investment management. But for me as a Brit looking out at the rest of the world and not having the luxury of having the world's largest market on my doorstep, I basically focused on the only game that I could, which was how much do you put overseas, where do you put it overseas, what do you do about currency? So although I found macro harder, it was ultimately more differentiating, which was important in marketing terms, let's be honest, and more rewarding in terms of performance when we got it right than the stock selection part. I mean, the firm I was part of did stock selection as well, but that wasn't the bit I was involved with.
1: Well, it's my view that in the investment business, it's better to be smart than credentialed. Uh, and probably your career has <laughs> has been indicative of that. And uh, yeah, it's and uh, it, it may have been an advantage with respect to Bitcoin, to be honest. I mean, certainly my economics training was a big disadvantage, uh, I feel, to my coming to Bitcoin, really understanding it, understanding its place in the world. I mean, I was clueless even about precious metals until about five years ago. It was just this giant, giant gap in my knowledge. And, uh, you know, in in retrospect, I wish I had not listened to my uh, elders and superiors in that regard and that I had been more curious and not missed this really important uh, part of the investment uh, world, really, which is hard money assets, because as we know, there are times when it's really important to own them.
2: Yeah, I mean I think I think I would say that I, I started off being an equity and bond and currency person and then commodities came in later to the game um, I was only catapulted into gold because of March last year I mean I'll be quite honest March last year scared me I knew I had money coming at some point in I thought one or two months it took six before we closed the land deal and during that time I decided I quite fancied my children and grandchildren to have some shiny precious metal coins, um, and resolve that I would buy gold and silver on day one. And then a couple of months later, somebody suggested I should look at crypto. And that's how I ended up with Bitcoin on day one. Um, so I'm new to both of these asset classes, very new. Um, yeah. Well, that pair
1: has probably worked out for you, because even though gold you know, although it performed OK, or relatively well, coming right out of the trough last year, uh, it hasn't done much since. But needless to say, Bitcoin uh, has more than made up for uh, for any disappointing performance recently in gold.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, we, we, you asked, um, Daniel, at the beginning about how people react. Um, I've had a lot of flack and teasing from my ex-colleagues and contacts and friends in the city. Um, and that particularly, there were a lot of people who said in, in February or March, I should kill my position at 40,000, um, know that I, I should at least, I think somebody said I should at least cut back to the point where I had zero book cost, in other words, so that everything I gained from the onwards was free. And I didn't take that advice. Um, and the comments are getting, I think the jargon is more and more salty as Bitcoin goes back up in price. Um, Get used to that, Bruce. (laughs) and, and, And I'm just sitting there at the present moment thinking my conviction, I mean, my biggest challenge as an investor, and I think it should be everybody's biggest challenge, is that tension, that very real tension between conviction trades, asymmetric conviction on the one hand, and good old Harry Markowitz and diversification on the other. And it's difficult. And I was just having a conversation with somebody this afternoon. What am I going to do when Bitcoin gets to 65,000? What am I going to do when Bitcoin gets to 85,000? What am I going to do when Bitcoin gets to 257,000? You know, these are real questions. And it's naive of any of this if we say we're going to huddle it forever, because we may or we may not. But we need to have a plan. If I've learned anything in 30 years of being involved in the markets is if you don't have a plan, you get wrecked. Um, and i think people need to think hard what their plan is and what this is all about Alfie,
1: yes that's right that's really sage Uh, advice yeah go ahead Prince. yeah i
0: i want to just dwell on this point just uh, a little bit longer about the difference between you know the 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 us psyche and the 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 british psyche when it comes to equities and and you guys are obviously talking from a professional uh, trader or investor point of view what about the plebs? What What do you think, you know, the, the general uh. guy on the street? The general guy on the street, I don't think in the UK is investing in equities. Whereas, you know, straight out of university, I think uh, US students are already focused on equities, especially now with Robin Hood and whatever else, these apps. But my, my exposure uh, when when I was working in foreign exchange markets, uh, I, I went in as a 19 year old. I didn't own an equity for the next three or four years none of my peer group any of them ever owned any equities outside of the financial markets just never did whereas all of the us guys that i met um you know around the same age as me they'd all already been buying equities it was like a, a very very common thing to them it'd been instilled in them probably from their parents or grandparents to to own a company or buy a disney share when you're 8 years old or something like that um first I I'll. I'll Kick that over to Andy, is that, have I kind of got the culture right? And then we'll come back to Bruce. Yeah,
1: I definitely think that, that's why I said earlier, you a know, sort of cu- culture of equities here in the US. I mean, that's, that's how I grew up now. <laughs> my case might be a little different because you know my father was a wealth manager as well. So he gave me some exposure, but I definitely think that uh, stocks have made so much money over such a long period of time. And the US has always had a relatively entrepreneurial slant. And moreover, it used to be that companies went public early enough that you could make a lot of money on the stock. Right? It was different than this post, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley world where it's just easier to stay private for a longer period of time. And so companies come at multi-billion-dollar valuations to the market when it used to be that a hundred million-dollar, you know, valuation IPO was not really that unusual. But yeah, I fully agree that uh, that stocks are the thing, or at least they have been the thing as f- long as I can remember here in, here in America.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, my father used to read the Investor's Chronicle, which is probably something that neither of you have ever heard of. Um, but the Investor's Chronicle was basically full of stock tips. and It was the most boring, I mean, to me as a 16, 17, 18 year old, it was conceivably the most boring, magazine that anybody could contemplate. So I, I didn't, my first uh, experience of investment was after I had joined an investment bank and I, enjoined, I, enjoined, I joined an investment bank because I had a degree in chemistry and the investment bank concerned thought I would know something about the oil industry, which was a complete, completely wrong in every sense of the word. <laughs> um, and fairly soon after that, I started to realize that a lot of projects Uh, oil projects, natural resources projects were actually hidden bets on the gold price or on the dollar, Australian dollar price or whatever it was and that investment management was more interesting and that's when I discovered shares. So it was, I never did anything privately and nor did any of my friends really. Um, It's only the ones who went into the city who became shareholders. Everybody assumed, everybody basically holds significant amounts of shares in their pension fund but they don't look at them.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. what about your friends
0: uh princey were they buying real estate instead like what was the alternative the alternative was just you know grind through life man like nobody had an eye on savings really Uh, i guess you had a savings account which you could still get anywhere between five to seven percent and most people were happy with that i suppose Uh, now of course that's been ripped away from from them. Uh, and, the, the you know, kids growing up now in their 20s, that's just not an option. So they've got to, you know, they're being forced to look somewhere else. Hopefully we're doing enough work here that they're going to look at Bitcoin. Uh, if not, at least look at investing into the equity market and doing something to try and make your, your capital work for you. But the level of uh, financial education is, is zero zero coming out of school it really is
2: absolutely absolutely zero i mean to the extent that i don't think the majority of i I would i mean my children are in their 30s i wouldn't say that any of them would be able to tell you the difference between a bond and equity if you ask them a direct question and 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 they in a sense they don't need to because they've all got careers they're all professionals they're all they're all doing their own thing perfectly adequately But investing, there isn't a culture of investing and and a focus on your 401k and and Roth and everything else, which happens in the States. It's just not there. And we don't talk about money to each other either because we're basically private.
1: Yeah, that is another another cultural difference. Americans, it's a mixed bag, but many Americans don't mind talking about uh, money, certainly. However, we are no better in the financial education department, as far as I can tell, I didn't get it in school. I was lucky to have been raised by great parents, you know, who taught me some of that stuff. And I guess I got a little bit of it in college. Although even the economics degree was largely irrelevant to the to the nuts and bolts of certainly of personal finance. And yeah, you know, the, there's those in the Bitcoin space that think this is intentional. That this is a this is an omission. That uh, that accrues to the benefit of the state because then they can get things by us as voters that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do if we were paying attention to to how the system works and i have to say considering how convoluted the structure of our financial system is and has become even more so over time you know i kind of think they're right
2: i I think regulation is such a two-edged sword i mean there was no doubt when I started in the city that there were deals that were done over lunches that probably shouldn't have been done, that weren't totally <laughs> open. Um, and, and, and I was involved in some of them myself, but it wasn't, you know, no one thought they were crooked. They were just closed to the vast majority of people. You had to be in the circle to get the deal. Um, and that was true of buying and selling gold PA as it, much as it was buying and selling new issues PA. Where I think it became problematic was the the Financial Services Act of 86, the big one, Big Bang, as it was called, was designed to make things fairer and was designed to make things more accessible. It did. It made things fairer, but it made things less accessible to ordinary people, and it stifled innovation. And I think there is this, I was listening to a very interesting discussion about what is the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum? Sorry, we're about to go back onto crypto. Um, and that you know, the comment made was that Bitcoin was about security, first and foremost, and Ethereum was about innovation, first and foremost, and that in some ways they were contradictory cultures. And, and if, if those who were interested in financial innovation focused, focused on Ethereum and those who were interested in, in hard money and security focused on Bitcoin, then there would be less tension between the two camps. And I wonder what you guys thought of that.
1: Yeah, well, so I agree with, I definitely agree with some of the premises, like let's say Ethereum uh, traders, investors, speculators are more focused on innovation. Um, I think that it would be better if Bitcoiners focused on hard money and Ethereum, Ethereans, let's call them, <laughs> didn't focus on hard money. The problem, though, is that Ethereum. Many in the community make bizarre claims, like you know we can do all the innovation and we can still be sound money. And so you know, don't look at Bitcoin. Um, and you know, it may end up looking a little bit like fiat money is more innovative, you know, than than gold or hard money. <laughs> in other words, in the in the long run, yes, it may be more innovative but it maybe isn't going to work out so well. I'm talking about Ethereum versus Bitcoin, at least as an investment and not, and as an investment, you know, as an extension of really how the evolution of those two protocols plays out. So, yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, I think it's definitely empirically true. Like when I look at people that I know, former colleagues I actually spoke with one a couple of weeks ago and we were having a conversation and, you know, I was talking about Swan and he was talking about how he's more of a, he was talking about how his, he his partner, his husband uh, is very into Bitcoin. And he was talking about, he himself is, I think it was, the quote was more of an, more of an Ethereum guy, you know? And so my heart, my heart broke a little bit. I told him that <laughs> when he said it, but, but yeah, it's, you know, he has covered technology investing for a couple decades now, he comes from the innovation perspective. He's spent time, um, you know, in Silicon Valley. That's where he still lives, and so it is definitely a different mindset. And there's still, uh, there's still a hope and a dream, I think, among the Ethereum set that it can maybe compete for uh, for everything, at least among part of that community, uh, which I think is is impractical and unrealistic. But I'll hand it to you, Princy.
2: Sorry, can I just say something? Sorry, Prince, I don't want to block you out of this conversation. You're meant to be interviewing us, not the other way around. But um, I mean, I I view Ethereum now knowing what I know. I bought Ethereum and I bought actually XLP, Ethereum and um, Bitcoin at the beginning because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, at least I bought it, which is good news. I then lost money on XLP a lot. Um, but my I maintain my Ethereum position. But as time has come on, I don't think of it as being the second largest crypto, as I did at the beginning, and as somehow a diversifier. I think of my Ethereum position as being a a speculative position in a tech stock, um, which is not what I'm meant to be doing, because I'm not very good at picking stocks. So why on earth have I got Ethereum? And it is to me a tech stock. It's not in the same league as Bitcoin, which is an apex predator asset, which fits in with the gold category. So I'm slowly moving out my ETH position into Bitcoin more than anything else, because it's the wrong type of investment to me, given my philosophy.
0: And it's beautiful to see, Bruce.
2: Yeah,
1: I think that it's a good framing, Bruce. And this is where some uh, speculators in, in crypto, in quotation marks, crypto, get into trouble, which is, They've they fortunately, I think many of them do realize exactly what you said, which is it's a speculative asset. There's a huge maybe potential market out there for it. But the problem becomes it's not the only one competing If Bitcoin has won the hard money category, which I believe it has, then yeah, you've got I don't know however many uh, Solana and Cardano and Avalanche and like, I hate to even mention uh, you know Algorand, all these all these names they can't it's a little bit like the tech bubble it's probably a little bit like the tech bubble of the late 90s early 2000s right which is yes there may be a huge market and if i add up the market cap of all the things trying to compete for it you know it, it it's too large a sum right <laughs> there's too much capitalization there potentially for for the market opportunity at least given the level of of development and adoption so that's my that's my perspective i look at bitcoin as well, even if I look at the sort of the ethereum trade, like could could ether be a good trade for the next six months? Yeah, it could. Could it go up you know more and faster than Bitcoin in percentage terms? Very possible. Um, you know, does it have ten times the execution risk <laughs> or more? Also, yes. So yeah, for me, it's the Bitcoin is huge potential upside from here with far less execution risk than any other digital asset or crypto asset out
2: there. Yeah, I mean, I I could see Ethereum fall massively because of a technical issue or because of governance issues or because one of the other pretenders leaps ahead suddenly, a bit like Netscape lost out. I'm not qualified to judge which is the best um, because I'm not a tech, a fintech specialist. So it would be wrong for me to put a significant percentage of my portfolio into something that is a punt i don't really understand or necessarily fully believe in Um, whereas i am completely comfortable having nigh on 50 percent of my portfolio in bitcoin um because it's a completely different sort of investment
1: yeah exactly yeah and 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 what, what i told sorry just one more thing what i tell people who have a sort of a basket let's say you know they got their bitcoin position and then they got a few other things i say because to your point earlier bruce the question of you know what's your plan right what's your plan in this ongoing bull market uh in bitcoin and crypto frankly what are you going to do when you get to those higher numbers and so what i tell people is great you've got your core bitcoin position You know, most or all of that is probably going to be a really good thing to hold for the very, very long term, multiple years, maybe even decades. And be ready, you know, have your your finger above the sell button for those other assets that you're speculating on. (laughs) Watch for that parabolic move in the chart. Watch for that point where price doubles in the span of a month. I'd actually love to, you know, get both of your perspectives on, you know, what is quote unquote parabolic, because for me, when I was looking, first of all, I don't, most of me doesn't care, right? I stack sats. I literally buy every week. Okay. But I was looking at the chart earlier this year and I was sort of expecting that parabolic move, the price doubling uh, in the span of a month, which is about what it's done in, in prior moves. And it just didn't happen. And so, you know part of me was surprised that we got the the deep correction that we did although i had speaking of getting wrecked i had published an article in march warning warning the plebs against watch out what happens when there's leverage don't use leverage but um yeah that's that get ready to uh, get ready to drop those heavy bags you know when you get the parabolic move yeah for sure yeah
2: i think i think i think you, know, you remember this the the ads that you you, you take your bets and you then watch them very, very carefully. And, and I have the luxury of being able to, to keep a pretty close eye on the markets. Um, I watch the Bitcoin Ethereum cross like a hawk. <laughs> um, I, I watch um, the price of Ethereum like a hawk. I have a strategic intent to lose my Ethereum position. I would be very surprised if I still have Ethereum in six months. Um, I'm just greedy bugger. So I, I'm actually hoping I'm gonna move it at 0.08 rather than 0.065 or whatever it is today. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trading out that gap, but I feel I came into Ethereum for the wrong reasons. And please, this is not a criticism of the Ethereum project or of any individual or anything like that. I have my doubts about those, but that's not the point. I ain't qualified to decide to invest in Ethereum. I'm qualified, I believe, perhaps naively, to invest in Bitcoin, and I'm very comfortable putting my grandchildren's future at risk having a big uh, Bitcoin position. I'm not comfortable with the same argument, the same position with Ethereum. And, and, And that may or may not be a good, quote, investment decision. But one is an investment, and one is a speculation. And we just have to get our categories right.
0: Yeah. And for the plebs listening, I just want to like you know, point out that you have many years experience and you are saying I'm not qualified to stock pick into this market. This is just a, a pure speculation. So for those people that are first coming to you know, financial markets and first starting out to try and invest, you'd be absolutely crazy to enter that casino, especially when the asset that we're talking about, Bitcoin, has annualized 200 percent per year over um over the period that's been around wh- why would you do anything else with with your hard earned money just put it there slowly aside dollar cost average into it and take back your time because you're going to spend so much time trying to stock pick or trying to crypto pick it, it's just it's just a waste uh, of energy uh, it really is um so that's that's my kind of throwing my hat in the ring on, on my thoughts about it um is there I-
1: I agree, Princey. I just want to augment that. Take that time you would have spent, you know, learning about the long tail of of nonsense uh, crypto assets. Focus instead on really deeply understanding Bitcoin. Maybe focus on uh, getting your Bitcoin knowledge base up high enough that if you're not already, you can you can get a job working in the industry because Bitcoin, if it reaches its potential, which I think it has a very good chance of doing, is going to disintermediate and eat the industries that i come from that bruce came from uh there's going to be a huge dislocation and a huge opportunity there and your friends and colleagues who have legacy regular way finance jobs 10 years from now they're going to be scratching their heads wondering what happened and wondering why they didn't jump on the bitcoin train many years earlier when they still had a chance yeah.
2: Yeah, I I think also you should have to think through. I'm unconvinced now, it's taken me a while to come to this conclusion, but I'm unconvinced that there isn't. I suppose what I'm really saying is that I believe that most of the things that are projects at the moment in the Ethereum or other blockchain spaces will ultimately be able to be done on level three, level four, level five, who knows, over the top of the, the, the main Bitcoin blockchain. Um, I, I think was t- it, it's harder to do real clever stuff in Bitcoin than it is to do it in Ethereum in some senses. And I, and I understand that and I get the technological reasons why, that, why that's the case. But I'm seeing some very, very bright people in the Bitcoin development camp who are doing some stuff that at the present moment you wouldn't think Bitcoin could ever do. And this is way beyond Lightning and, and the clever stuff that's going on. I'm talking about extremely complex contracts, um, extremely complex ownership documents that are held on the same blockchain, art that could be ha- held on the same blockchain. These are this is a bigger thing than I think most of us realize.
1: Yeah, that's right. And people get I, I got confused, or I was said how long it takes to build this stuff. In other words, if I wind back the clock to 2017, which is when I started digging into Bitcoin and, and crypto overall, it seemed to me, or my perception was that, yes, Bitcoin is great, still the market leader, but why haven't they already built all this functionality on top that they're allegedly building on all these other blockchains? And it just takes time, Um, you know, hats off to Marty Bent. Uh, That was one of his mantras back back in those days and years was all this stuff takes time, it takes longer than you think, even though it may be faster in theory to build software than it is to build hardware, it still takes a long time to effectively build good software that doesn't have bugs, that isn't gonna blow up on you. And when you're building the base layer for the financial system, the new base layer for the financial system, Well, you better not make mistakes. So these guys take their time, they know what they're doing and they make that trade-off between, yeah, security versus moving fast and breaking things.
2: Yeah, and you do only have to look at the, you know, the DAO exploit on Ethereum, which was, you know, seminal for Ethereum's development, but caused a major rethink. you only have to look at that to realize that it only requires one bit of shabby thinking and one bit of lack of preparation for the whole pack of cards to be challenged and bitcoin hasn't had that moment
0: and i don't think ever will it had the block size wars um you know back in those days when that was just being fought tooth and nail uh the most recent two other um like the segwit implementation and then taproot um these things that they get clearly, openly discussed, and you you do see you know huge, huge fights in the space, uh, you know when these things are being discussed. But at least it is being discussed, and it does take a long time for these things to get put in place properly and with consensus, which that's what's different about all the other projects. You know, that, that's what's different about uh, proof of stake because if that one guy wants that thing in place and he has all the voting rights, then it's good, you know, l- look out. God knows where it's going to happen. God knows what's going to happen to these chains as soon as something like that starts. It, it they, they, they are dangerous places to be. Yep. It's really crucial to understand this, and this is a
1: common mistake that people make on the path to understanding Bitcoin, in my opinion. They... Yep. First find Bitcoin, then they see all the whizzy other cool stuff and they haven't yet dug into the history, um, you know, as as you both just described. The fact that the block size wars happened in Bitcoin and the minority, the intransigent minority won that fight tells you with pretty high confidence that no single entity or even group within the system, even if it's. Arguably, got a quote-unquote majority in terms of power or economic uh, heft because that's really that really was true. I mean, the closed door room with sort of many or all, almost all, most, let's say, of the major economic powers, the exchanges, the the miners, they were all on board with making this major change. And the node operators, a group of the node operators, they said no. Um, this, by the way, is also how many governments work or are supposed to work. Um, it's not ruled by the majority. It's you know, it's protection of minority rights, and there is a reason that that system exists. And reasons there's a reason that system ex- of government exists here in the U.S. and, and across the pond in the U.K. And um, yeah, the the the, the Dow, the, the Dow fork versus the block size wars were the two defining moments, and they're night and day. And those moments in history really do define these two different uh, these two tif- different groups.
2: Yeah although I would argue that although the Bitcoiners think about the blockchain wars as being you know almost like something out of Star Wars, actually it was minor compared to the Dow hack. I mean the Dow hack was was hideous in comparison and I don't think people necessarily grasp that
0: a good point. All right, let's move on to uh, we will back to, to financial advice because this is something that kind of uh, struck me the other day. And we were talking about the the education piece earlier, it's uh, it, it, the whole industry seems to be on its head. Um, Andy, you, you're probably most qualified to answer this one, but the people that can well qualify for financial advice, uh, and Bruce, you'd know this, uh, you, you've been opened up to a higher level of advice, I would imagine, whereas the people that really need the financial advice are the plebs, but they can't afford the financial advice in the first place. It's kind of like this, you know, it's on its head. Do you you see what I mean? If you've got 3 million pounds, I can advise you on what to do with that. If you've got 30 pounds in your checking account, out the door, son, you you know, I don't wanna know you.
1: Yeah, look, I, in business to make a profit and unfortunately there's a lot of truth to what you just said and it's it's even worse than just oh you know I make a percent of assets as my fee so I want a bigger pool rather than a smaller pool it's also the fact that in the US there's actually this bifurcation in the structure of the industry which is you have registered investment advisors that's what I am and then you have broker dealers and broker dealers are not fiduciaries. They they have a standard of conduct, which is known as suitability, which is much lower than the standard of conduct uh, of a fiduciary, which is what applies to me and other registered investment advisors. And so what happens at a practical level is many of the broker-dealers end up focusing on the lower end of the market because that's where they can suck more fees out of their Relatively naive clients. Let's be honest, um, and so yeah, you get this sort of adverse—I um, don't know—adverse selection effect. Maybe you would call it, whereby the uh, the guys that are not fiduciaries do not have to put their clients ahead of their own interests, end up preying to some degree on uh, on the lower end of the market.
2: Yeah, I think in the UK we have less of that divide because actually what happens is the the, the lower uh, net asset value people tend not to be tend not to get serviced at all. They either go into something like a robo investor or they don't invest, or they go to a an aggregated market market manager who tend not to be very good at their job. Then you have people who have enough wealth to have their own manager, um, and the big banks offer wealth managers and those I suppose are two to about four or five million and then when you get above five million it's a different world suddenly you move into the world of private banking real private banking rather than what's labeled private banking by the retail banks where the issues are much more about making your capital work harder having borrowing facilities being able to borrow against your assets not selling to avoid capital gains tax and the world's a different place there and then suddenly you're dealing with actually borrowing becomes more important than investment
1: management to many ways. Yeah, it's a good point, especially at the high end. The structure, I agree with you, is is not that different in, in what I think you're calling private banking. At least in the US, that's where the big investment banks, uh, the big global investment banks, you know, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, that's where they get much more uh, competitive. So like speaking... Personally, um, you know, my average client size is roughly four million. Um, I get a lot more competition from those guys among my larger clients, you know, that are in the in the ten million up range, uh, than I do. uh, Yeah, where I where I sit, I'm kind of in the sweet spot between, uh, you know, the the investment banks here, which is analogous to private banking, as you described it, um, and the and the lower end.
2: Do your clients, I don't even give me, it's probably a rude question, but do your clients borrow money to invest?
1: Yeah, so the answer is not that much, um, and there's a couple ways to think about that. I mean, certain alum, certainly a lot of them have mortgages, and they could pay down their mortgages if they chose, but they don't, so sort of that marginal dollar that they could use to pay down debt is invested so is that borrowing to invest yeah so in certain in certain cases um are they frequently using margin debt directly in their accounts pretty rarely i definitely have some clients that do it regularly and i manage that balance for them um and it's Gotten cheap, I have to say, <laughs> margin debt is is pretty inexpensive. So it's it's definitely tempting, especially if you have a higher risk uh, appetite. It doesn't make as much sense to borrow on margin to buy fixed income assets because you know after tax there may there may not be a net a net gain in that regard. But for equities, if you really want to shoot the lights out, some people do it. And it is, uh, to your point, Bruce, about you know, the average size of client, it tends to be the upper end client that have a large equities portfolio that are more likely to, um, you know, to, to borrow against it. And I do have several clients that work, you know, have made careers specifically in the real estate industry. And so they're doing deals periodically so sometimes they'll come to me and they'll say you know hey I'm gonna I'm gonna do this deal I'm going to buy this apartment building or buy this share of this uh, of this asset over here in, in real estate land you know but I don't want to pay taxes to your point uh, capital gains taxes so I'll just take out some money we'll keep it on margin uh, for a while and uh, if I get an exit on another asset then then we'll pay down the margin debt
2: but do you get, I mean, I, I personally borrow against gold and, and holdings in and a hedge fund to provide me with sterling, which I then use in large part to buy Bitcoin. Is that an unusual approach um, in America? Is it is in fact, is it legal in America? I don't know. So
1: I actually, for the purposes of our business, because we've got, we basically have two products. We really, you know, 90 plus percent of our assets is just, global diversified investment strategy, liquid assets for our clients. That's like the bread and butter. And then we do have a hedge fund fund to fund. So we have a hedge fund strategy. And then we also put some clients, some of our largest clients directly into individual name hedge funds. We have not set up credit facilities for clients to borrow against those hedge fund holdings. Um, I looked at it pretty hard a few years ago for our fund to fund structure and It's actually kind of difficult. I mean, I went pretty far down the path with, I think it was Bank of America. Maybe it was two parties. That's the one that that I remember. And the documentation and the restrictions that they wanted to impose on it, uh, the covenant package uh, with respect to uh, the leverage level that was allowed, as well as the requirements on reporting from the underlying funds were kind of onerous. And so we just, and it ended up not being that, cheap uh in terms of the you know the interest rate that was going to be charged on that on that debt so we didn't end up going through with it um i ended up being sort of surprised and a little disappointed at how difficult it was to set up but we could have done it and i I have no doubt that there are people out there who do take that step Um, we just haven't done it
2: and do you know anybody who borrows against their bitcoin was that still in the land of science
1: fiction? Uh, yeah. Sadly, well, none of my clients do. I definitely, uh, I definitely advise them against borrowing against their Bitcoin. Uh, but uh, of course, I am aware of people in the Bitcoin space, you know, who are not my clients. Uh, probably have a larger portion of their assets in Bitcoin than my average client. And they, yeah, they, they, some of them go for it. Fortunately, most of them don't, you know, do it in size. I can think of one in particular, uh, who I think has been a guest on your show, Princey. Um, I won't name him, but, um, he uses a, he, he uses a very low loan to value. You know, he only borrows a small percentage. And of course he doesn't post his, uh, full amount of his stack against it as collateral, um, I just want to harp on that point, which is my personal view, which is I, I hear over and over from people who are into Bitcoin. Um, yes, I borrow, but I have so much pledged as collateral that it'll never get liquidated. Okay, this is, a, this is a fallacy. I couldn't disagree with it. I couldn't disagree with it more. My view is if you're crazy enough to borrow against your Bitcoin in a structure where you can get margin called, right? Someday, so over the rainbow years from now, there will be reasonably priced debt that uh, will allow you to bar against your Bitcoin without a margin call, you know, which has a real maturity so that you can't get rug pulled. Um, but in the absence of that world, I think it's crazy to post a ton of collateral against your, your, your uh, holdings because if we do get a flash crash, then you're really going to get screwed, right? Better to post a, a, a higher loan to value and just accept that you could lose that uh, that part of your stack. I think pledging more of your stack is is nuts.
2: Andy, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I've been thinking very hard about how to structure this for myself. And I've come to exactly the same conclusion. The approach I'm thinking of at the present moment, just for amusement, and it is a bit for amusement, is, look, um, I could put, 10, 15 Bitcoin up uh, at, a, at a low LTV. Stuff it. I'm not going to do. I'm going to. I'm considering going with an Estonian firm where there's real credit risk. But I'm putting five Bitcoin up, and as a percentage of my stack, I can afford to lose it. So I can, you know, I can borrow 125,000 pounds against five Bitcoin. Forget it. If it goes wrong, it goes wrong. It's a bit like my investment in DeraBit, which is also looking sick on my <laughs> very very high uh, out of the money calls these are reasonable strategies for somebody who it was greg Foss who said look he's an inveterate trader what do you expect him to do he goes in and trades a stack ordinary people shouldn't do that uh, don't you know do what i say don't follow what i do i think has to be the, the general comment because yeah you know, i've done it for years I, I i doesn't mean i'm that much better at it than you but i i do have risk control and as greg again says you know, he was an awful risk risk manager if you don't have risk management and place. Shouldn't be doing this stuff.
0: Truer words were never spoken, Bruce. So putting that uh, putting that Bitcoin up and uh, and taking the the cash out is that just to go straight back into Bitcoin? Are you uh, are you hoping for a, a, a crash of some sort? No. What's the? No, I'm not. What's? I'm I, I'm not suicidal. Um, I have to,
2: <laughs> no. I mean, uh, here's a side of my life. I, I'm. I have some philanthropic projects I want to put some money into, some, mm-hmm. um, including bills.
0: So it's not a strategy to grow your stack higher. It's it's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle.
2: It's, it's a, I don't want to pay capital gains tax on my Bitcoin. Um, mm-hmm. So the only way I can give 100,000 quid overseas, which is what I'd like to do, is to borrow against my Bitcoin. Um, and I'm going to run that position, hopefully, six months after six months, year after year or whatever, until rather like you know, housing, at a certain point, the borrowing becomes irrelevant because the collateral's worth so much, I don't care. So my thought was I would put five Bitcoin out um, and borrow 125,000. And then in six months time, it'll only need to be two Bitcoin out to continue my 125,000 borrowing and so on and so on.
1: Yeah, so Bruce, I, I think you got the right, I... The right idea there. I mean, I, you know, I personally don't have any debt against my Bitcoin. I am really, really reluctant, as I said, to borrow against it in any format where I can get the rug pulled. I do believe that some years from now, there will be a market for term debt uh, against Bitcoin collateral. Who knows? Maybe I'm naive. Uh, that's actually not so common uh, in, in equities. Although I think it does exist, you could probably speak on that from experience. Um, if you've got, you know, if you've got the right connections or if you've got enough assets, but uh, yeah, leverage against Bitcoin scares the hell out of me. Yeah,
2: I think we've got to remember that the most valuable way of doing it, and the problem is, it's not, it's not there yet, is what I would call cross collateralized borrowing, where I can put my hedge fund, my gold, my Bitcoin, my yacht that I don't have. Um, out as a a mixed collateral bag and borrow against it. Because then if one goes up, one goes down, it doesn't matter so much. The chances of of a cash call are very, very low. Um, And in a sense, because I've got gold and hedge fund borrowed against at the present moment, which I have used to buy Bitcoin. Now, when I borrow against Bitcoin, I'm not gonna be buying more Bitcoin. I'm going to be giving some assets away. I mean, I am about, I'm about, I'm about 20% borrowed in my fund. If you have my futures positions where I'm leveraged in commodities and in Bitcoin and you add my borrowings, my lombar borrowings against my hedge fund and, and gold, I'm about 20, 20, 22% borrowed, I guess. I'm not going to go higher than that. So that's 1.2x. And when you look at these people who go out onto Femex or Deribit and do 3x or 5x, you know... Okay, you might get lucky, but the chances are you're going to be overtaking at just the time there's somebody else coming on along the other way, and, and you're going to lose the lot. Um, leverage is valuable, but you've got to know what you're doing. Um, just the same as buying out of the money calls is valuable if you know what you're doing, which demonstrably, since I lost all my, all my stack that I did on that in September, um, I'm not good at it. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's
1: good to it's good it's good to know your strengths and your and your weaknesses, uh, Bruce. I really like your idea of cr- of cross collateralized borrowing, especially against gold. Um, I'm not going to make you know a strong pitch for gold, uh, but yeah, having having an asset that is actually uncorrelated to most of your risk assets because most of the risk assets kind of move together. Let's be let's be frank. Let's be honest. Um, it's maybe not gonna save you in a general liquidation like we had in March of last year where literally everything goes down, including gold. Even even uh, government bonds did for a while. That was the moment of panic for uh, <laughs> for the central bankers, I think, uh, but uh, cross-collateralized lending is, is a great idea.
2: And the other type of lending that I find interesting, which I'm hearing more and more conversation about is where you don't have your lending mark to market each night, which is the older way of doing it. I was offered a a Bitcoin loan by a a relatively conventional manager where I deposited Bitcoin and received uh, sterling as as a borrowing. And he was offering me the average of the preceding three nights of prices on Bitcoin, which makes a very big difference. That avoids the flash crash. The problem is that when you look at his cost structure, it was very much more than the crypto offerers. So yes, it's a better product, but at 3%, 4% higher than if I went to uh, Leaden, no, no. I'll I'll go with Leaden or someone like that. There's a a price for convenience and safety and it's too high a price.
0: Price matters. Mm. It's such a dicey world still, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, again, for, for anybody listening, this is something you got to know a lot about, and think deeply about even, you know, pledging, thinking about pledging any of your stack mm. uh, for over to this stuff, because, again, like, um, it's going to do its thing, Bitcoin is going to do its thing. And th- I, I want to take this on now to a different direction and, and speak to you both about what you're seeing. In the terms of uh, big players coming into the market, you know, like uh, Bruce, I know you've spoken to some institutional type investors. Andy, I'm not sure exactly uh, what exposure you have over in in the U.S., but this is definitely something that is coming. You know, NIDIG have been doing an incredible job of putting all of these like uh, procedures in place and getting all the regulations in place and getting all of the buyers lined up and all of the brokers lined up. It's going to explode when they hit the green button that's my personal uh, thinking. And you know, you, you've got life insurance funds in the wings just waiting, they've done the work, they've made the decisions, they know what they're going to um, be facing. And Bruce, I think we spoke about this on the, um, the the last episode we did, how far further down the line, are some of these institutions do you think? And uh, have you been hearing anything new?
2: Uh, the answer is, I'm probably talking to institutions or I mean, there are, there are three types of contacts I have, and I've done all three of these jobs in different ways. There are the consultants to the pension funds and life funds, uh, who are the actuaries and other types of consultants, asset consultants. There are the trustees, the guys who, who are the fiduciary, collective fiduciary responsibility. And then there are also the in-house staff, who are the staffers, who, who the chief investment officer and so on. So you're dealing with at least three players in terms of a big institution deciding to go in. And I've been talking to all three of those, plus the underlying asset managers if they choose to appoint an asset manager to run the position for them. So there could be four. Um, I talk probably every day now to somebody in this space. I'm not quite sure why I've become known. I think it's obviously word of mouth. And I'm I'm just getting a, a, a stream of, can I have 10 minutes of your time type conversations? I and mean, they're very interesting. Uh, and they range from you know, just tell me why we shouldn't even dream of touching crypto to um, you know, talk to me in detail about multi-sig, how does it work? So I, can, I get a whole range of things. I have to keep saying to people, I am not qualified to provide this advice. I am not protected in, in a regulatory environment. I'm just an ordinary player who's, who's got a bit of experience but providing they accept that informality, um, then these conversations go very well. I think the comment I would make is it's slower than everybody likes to think. The decision-making process, the gap between somebody, say the chief investment officer deciding that, yeah, we're gonna go for crypto, and the first order that hits the trading desk can be nine months or a year on these big boys. I mean, it's very slow, there are very many, pieces of paper to be signed, there are very many meetings to be had between multi-parties. What do I see going on at the moment? A very large player has been in the market in the last week. I think it's Sama, I think it's Saudi, but I could be wrong. But there have been trading patterns that I can see that are consistent with a certain style of trading desk. And it's still going on. It was going, it's been going on. I think it's actually going on at this precise moment. Looking, at this. I mean, it shows how sick I am. I'm half concentrating on this and half watching Bitcoin price. Um, <laughs> because I, I because I, I. The mind virus
0: I, is real, Bruce. It is. It's real.
2: <laughs> I, I see these waves of buying, followed by relaxation to let the market recover back to the floor. And then you start the buying pressure again. And it's been going on for seven days, at least somebody out there, it's probably more than one person, but there's at least one player with a characteristic OTC desk style who's doing what I would do, which is to buy, put the pressure up and then allow it to collapse, put the pressure up, let let it collapse. Um, That's very, very interesting. I've not seen that before. And I've looked at, you know, I did my own in-house analytics. I'm not a on-chain specialist at all. Um, I'm much more interested in price history. But I've looked at price history of Bitcoin uh, for the last five years in in as small a detail as I possibly can, looking for patterns and looking for behaviours. And there are lots of parallels between Bitcoin price action and foreign exchange price action, and I'm not surprised. Foreign exchange price action is what I used to do in the 90s really, really intensively. I'm seeing OTC desks buying in hard. And that's what forget whatever anybody else is talking about the real reason for what has happened in the last 10 days 12 days is institutional purchasing there's no fomo there's no retail conversation. It's not all over the financial times or the guardian this is this is professionals going into the market those decisions to go into the market at probably 55 or 48 or whatever were possibly made in April or even in January. Um, and uh, the order gets to the OTC desk, gets the in-house trading desk and talks to the OTC desk at Kraken or somebody else and off they go to the races. And it may take them a month to build up their position. I mean, we're talking about thousands of Bitcoin. Um, and th- that is what I believe has happened. So that's, that's my insight for what it's worth.
1: Yeah, that's what are you seeing? That's good. What are you uh, seeing, Andy? That's good stuff, Bruce. Um, so I'm not as close to I'm definitely not as close to the pension world, to the large institutional world. You know, my most of my contacts are folks actually running hedge funds, you know, or mutual funds. And so those guys have been adopting it for themselves over time. Um, it's still only the macro funds i think for the most part or the dedicated you know crypto funds if you want to call them that that really have exposure uh, i think it was soros fund that was the piece of news recently admitted that uh, that they own bitcoin which is no surprise we don't know if they own much of it and anyway they're uh, they're DG, macro guys or degen traders like uh, like anyone else so they may hold it for a while but they may or may not uh, hold it for the long term <laughs> i remember when Druckenmiller miller came in I mean that's got to be almost a year ago now. I can't remember the timing, but so yeah, so I don't have a a great view into big money, long term asset accumulators uh, like Bruce does. I will say that it's just been a slow trickle. It hasn't been a flood in in my you know sort of context. That it's more people paying attention, more people getting a bit of exposure you know, more people kind of sniffing around and basically getting up the, the knowledge curve. Um, it takes a lot of time.
2: Yeah, I would say that a bit of exposure is what's so scary, because a bit of exposure for these guys will push Bitcoin up 5000 points um, each. You know, that's the scary thing. The sums of money involved are awesome. I mean, you made an earlier comment, I want to pick you up on it how much do your clients have if a a guy has a 10 million quid portfolio with you 10 million dollar portfolio with you sorry about how much would you say he should have in bitcoin what would be your 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 recommendation
1: yeah so first the usual disclaimer which is every client's different and that's factually true however i can tell you that we're today you know at current prices let's say a little under five percent we're 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 close to five percent um which I'm sure makes us an outlier among, uh, you know, makes my clients an outlier among wealth managers, um, to the, to the upside. Right. I think most, most wealth managers, if they're allowing any exposure at all, or probably one, 1%, 2%. And so for me, it's, well, it's a couple things. I mean, one is we bought it well, <laughs> you know, it's not like we just put on this position. We, we started uh, buying in 2019 for clients I did. Um, and, so that's one factor and then yeah a second factor is not so much that you're gonna sync the portfolio but enough to make a difference um so that's where we are today
2: which is very very different from the crypto twitter maxi
1: oh yeah yeah you know there's people there's people who are just all they're just all in right uh you only live once. Uh, This is a, you know, once in a lifetime or, or longer opportunity. Why would you save your money in anything else? Um, You know, it's uh, there's, there's all kinds out there. And many, uh, many have extreme conviction in Bitcoin. I also, by the way, have extreme conviction in Bitcoin. It's hard for me to ever see. Well, I don't know. I never had anyone ask me, like, what's the most you would put in Bitcoin for clients? I don't know the answer to that. It would depend on facts and circumstances. I am constrained by the fact that it, you know, just like the institutions are constrained that like, okay, how much of your portfolio for clients are you going to put into an asset that's only a trillion dollars? Not that a trillion dollars is a small amount of money, but it's not an enormous amount of money in the grand scheme of asset classes. In fact, it's quite small. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it plays out.
2: Do you think that, I mean, you mentioned market cap. Do you think that is an important factor? Because for me, the question is all about how much can an ATC desk put in in the morning? It's a totally different question.
1: Um, yeah, you're right. Liquidity is is a different thing. I mean, I, I for me, they're both important. Um, for me, they're both important. And, you know, in reality... At this size, you know, like my my personal, like my client book is call it roughly three hundred million. So if you're putting five percent, you know, on three hundred million, talking fifteen million bucks, you know, c- can you move in and out in a day, fifteen million bucks? And the answer is yeah, you, d- you definitely can. So um, I don't have a liquidity constraint on Bitcoin, um, but you're right, liquidity uh, liquidity matters every bit as much to me as as market cap.
2: Now, I was talking to the guy who is, I think he's the head of trading, if not he's deputy head of trading for a massive pension fund in. Or how much can I say? Let's say Holland, the Netherlands. Let's leave it as vague as that. Um, over the weekend, <laughs> and you know, for them to put half, I mean, his bite size is half percent of the fund. He doesn't, he doesn't think there's much point in playing with less than that. Right. But For them to put half a percent of the fund in, he said, you know, the, I, would, the, I would do it in 30 days, but not longer. That starts to become a real issue. You, what can you get into the market in 30 days? And we were having that precise discussion. And I have put him in touch with, with a guy at Kraken who, who's helped me. Um, and it is difficult. I mean, today, I'm just looking at the volume numbers. Today, I think you would have no problems putting possibly a bill in the market if, as 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 a sole. You know that you had a trading desk, you could put a bill in the market today if you did it without significant price moves. There are days when I'm not sure you could put a 100 100 Um That those are pressures, but but if you were a strategic asset acquirer, so you know, this pension fund would not would never. I mean, they might top slice once they got a 5% of their fund and, it, and Bitcoin continued up, but they're not going to top slice up until that point. They might put half a percent in the fund. If it became 3% in in five weeks' time, they're not going to cut back. They're not They're not hot money. They're, they're, they're very cold money. Um, they don't care too much about liquidity getting out. What they care about is overpaying. It's the liquidity getting in that worries them.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that, well, I had to imagine there's different categories of acquirers here or accumulators. Well, I should say acquirers, the buyers. There's some that see it as a trade and whatever they like the chart at the moment. You know, they're gonna they're gonna flip in and out, and make some money. But yeah, if you're a big money, you know, pension type investor, institutional investor, that's just not your game, right? Um, no, you're I mean- you're accumulating. You're not going to bother at all. You're not going to buy any of it if you don't think you're going to hold it for a period of years, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, well, put it this way: the, the fund I was talking to um, last night, the one I'm particularly thinking of, um, they aren't. They don't make an asset allocation decision more than every six months. They have an asset allocation meeting every six months, and it may be three months or even six months after the decision is made before the lever is pulled to go into the market. You know, they're not going to they're not going to top slice at 100k um (laughs) they they i know what they're going to do i mean you know when i say to them what's your strategy for 100k what's your strategy for 200k you know the response is there they're sunny it's a a nice problem to have when we get there (laughs) i actually think a lot of bitcoiners think like that and i think that is fundamentally mistaken i think you want to know what you're going to do when you're 2% in your portfolio or your 50% in your portfolio becomes 3% or 75%, however much you have. Because I think holding 50% of the fund in Bitcoin feels very different from holding 75% of the fund in Bitcoin.
0: At least I think, and I wonder if there's. I think I think it's okay. going to.
2: I'm going to wait and see because that's going to be me hopefully.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now I wonder. I wonder if there's a bit of game theory at play here as well, because the the bigger institutions, like the the player that you're talking about right now, if they do come in and they find that the work that the, the market liquidity is running away from them, uh, where does that liquidity then come from? It's not going to be the plebs, you know, selling our you know tiny amounts. They don't care about us, but it's the the other not so large institutions that are in the market already and their asset allocation has gone from one to eight percent they're going to be forced probably to rebalance and that's just going to get gobbled up by the uh, the bigger guys that are coming in behind them uh do, do you see it does that make kind of sense what what I'm saying there big you know that this rebalancing kind of problem that a smaller fund is going to have when the risk manager sees holy shit we we went in with one percent it's now nearing ten percent we've got a trim position i
2: I think one to ten percent yes but i think your source of liquidity is actually going to be the hedge funds who've gone in thirty percent it's now forty percent at which point that's where the risk manager says cut your positions or that or the prop desks for the banks who go in and get thirty percent exposure and you know they can't be thirty percent they've got to be twenty five percent I think liquidity in the next few months is not gonna come from long-term buy and hold institutions, whatever Bitcoin price does. And liquidity is gonna come from people, possibly OGs, possibly um, people who got in uh, four years ago, uh, possibly even some people who got in a year ago who are going to have big positions and they're gonna say, this was fine at 60,000, but at 120,000, I want a quarter of it out. And, and that, that mm-hmm. process of redistribution, who was it? Was it Soros? No, it wasn't Soros. It was, um, I remember who it was who said that in, in times of market growth and in times of market stress, shares are distributed to their rightful owners. Um, I think that's what will happen. I think we will see, see the people who really believe in the project acquiring greater exposure and those who are less certain reducing their positions. And, and that is natural dog eats dog
0: Sailor is a perfect example, right? Here, here's a guy that has the complete conviction and he's gone at it like uh, full guns blazing.
2: Yes. Um, I, I can't, I've never met the man. I can't comment. To me, he seems overly aggressive, but I suspect he knows more about what he's doing than we do.
1: Yeah, Sailor knows what he's talking about. Um, Sailor knows what he's talking about. Um even when, I, even when I said it publicly that I thought he could raise debt to buy Bitcoin, I didn't think he'd go to the extent
2: that he is no. gone. <laughs> no. I mean, it, it, is, it is truly extraordinary. But I mean, I, I actually, I mean, I have a friend who's a private individual in the UK who's got 700 Bitcoin round numbers um, and he's buying. Um, you know his dollar cost average is probably around the seven thousand dollar mark, and he's still, you know, he's, he's positive cash flow. He's a, a wealthy businessman. He's still pouring money into it because he thinks that at anything below about five hundred thousand, this is ridiculously cheap. He can't see a better investment right. opportunity. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that he's got seven hundred Bitcoin, and this is PA. I don't know what he's done with his treasury equivalent. I mean, that is the problem. It's very hard when i say to people you know what are you going to do with bitcoin when it gets to 120,000 or 240,000 their response is well where else do we put it and that's a very fair question
1: so i face this question and i have wrestled with it a lot personally i definitely don't believe i can call a top on bitcoin although like i mentioned earlier i am looking for a telltale sign like you know a real a real blow off you know, I'm curious what you guys think is is a blow off top. You know, sort of how, how you identify that. But the other thing is to consider is tax. You know, I'm a taxpayer. You hear some of these guys talking about how they're trading Bitcoin, or they're trading crypto. Well, if you're talking about taxable money, forget about it. Who, who's who's going to make a net gain on a trade in Bitcoin with taxable funds? Unless you're in a in a really pretty low tax or no tax jurisdiction. I mean, was there? You know if you timed it just right earlier this year if you'd sold the top you know and re- rebought the bottom or waited you know had the foresight to sell uh the top before it came down and had the foresight to not let leg back in you know bef- before the absolute bottom would you have come out ahead yes uh, modestly um but that's that's near impossible to do uh in my view when i take the same view i ask myself okay isn't this thing still stupid cheap? Yes. Uh, you know, do I think I can call these moves? No. Uh, do I want to own more Bitcoin rather than less in the long run? Yes. Uh, you know, what, <laughs> how how are you gonna how are you gonna trade this thing? I just I think it's uh, I think it's near impossible.
2: I think one of the things that I observe from casual observation in crypto Twitter is that an awful lot of people think they're going to get away without paying tax. Um, and I think that's both immoral and it's dangerous. Um, I don't know about the US, but in the UK, if you're open and honest with HMRC, our tax unit, they are pretty good to you. If you f- once in your entire tax career, try and put a fast one, they give you grief year after year for the rest of your life, no mercy. Um, I think these kids who are who are playing with you know, quite some, well, even quite small positions, but thinking they're not going to declare it are are wrong. I think it's a mistake for them. I think it's immoral. I think it's a mistake for them. That's my personal view.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think you don't want to live life as a fugitive. <laughs> at least most people don't. You know, look, take a look at John McAfee. I don't know. I mean, I mean, some people idolize that guy, but uh, I don't. And I think it ended. Badly for him, and I think that uh, most people would be well advised to, yeah, to uh, to comply with the tax laws because uh, the tax man's arm is long and strong.
2: I would just make a plea to people. I I talk to people quite often. I probably talked to a dozen since Christmas who've said to me something on the lines of, "I've been in crypto for a year or five years or eight years. I've got this potential tax problem. What would you do?" my strong encouragement is to get advice from a good uh, tax accountant or tax barrister and then go to the revenue with their help or get them to go to the revenue and say, look, I screwed up, help me. And I think when that happens, particularly if you're you know, under 40 and most of them are and have not necessarily ever filled in a tax return in the UK because they've just been on PAYE, I think the revenue is very sympathetic and will be very sympathetic with them. But boy, if the revenue find you, then that's a completely different game. And the types of people you deal with on in HMRC investigation are just so different from the types of people you deal with on the customer helpline. I mean, don't go there. And that's probably the same as true of the IRS. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I know. So they would be oh, go ahead. Yeah, just one question there, Bruce. So, so they would be found, um, I'm I'm guessing, if they were to Uh, liquidate some Bitcoin on an exchange and withdraw that to their bank account. I mean, there's going to be red flags all over the place. Uh, I
2: I think the reach of HMRC is probably further than you think. I mm -hmm. think that even big, I think big holders of Bitcoin will be challenged, uh, even if they've never sold them. I think you'll be asked, where did you get the funds? And I think those questions will be asked and the revenues entitled to ask them even if you don't have any tax. I think people who've traded uh, in and out of cryptos will be challenged. Uh, I think that anybody who is in the crypto space cannot assume that pseudonymity is the same as anonymity, if that makes sense.
1: Good advice, Bruce, good
2: advice. Um, I mean, let's face it, there is, at least in the UK, there's potentially quite a lot of tax to gain. What does the tax authority do? It identifies the lowest lying fruits. If they've got bright young men and women who can go into the blockchain and find you, it's a lot lower cost than tramping around uh, shoe leather, looking at dodgy taxi firms in London. You know, I'd much rather, if I was going to do an investigation that's going to produce fruit, I'd much rather chase 100 people in crypto than 100 london taxi drivers it's
0: an
1: that's yeah. right it's a it's a return on investment it's an roi calculation for them
0: yep yep andy i think uh i think we've hit your hard stuff, man
1: yeah this has been a, a blast uh, bruce and uh princy really uh, really appreciate it i had a good time and uh i'll have to throw in one last shill as we wrap here but if you're ready for it go come on shill it yeah yeah so so as you know, I'm involved with uh, Swan Bitcoin, and uh, as of very recently, I'm helping them launch a sw- a uh, Bitcoin accumulation uh, service, you know, for clients. So I'm putting my uh, my time and money where my mouth is as an advisor. You know, we're trying to differentiate ourselves basically as being Bitcoin only, and then of course leading uh, with education. So for any uh, any folks listening, uh, we've we're going to be launching a service swan advisor services, you know, go to, uh, I guess it's swan, swan, bitcoin.com
0: forward slash advisor to, uh, to check it out. If you're interested. Would that give people direct access to you? Like it, would that be one-to-one phone calls or how, how would it work? Um, I haven't made that promise yet. We've got a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they'll ask me, uh, no, the we've got They're picking their phones up. We like, got a, uh, <laughs> we got a
1: whole, a whole team. Um, terence yang uh, and others you know basically have been uh, helping wealthy individuals and family offices buy bitcoin for the last i don't know year or so probably and so that uh,
0: team is going to be supporting our advisor services team as well cool and one one question we didn't Cover And so Andy, just give us a, a quick one sentence on this. Um, Bruce wanted to talk about like the, the fact that he thinks London is uh, becoming less relevant as a financial center. Well, I think that was my, I think, I, I thought- or Was Bruce, that yours?
2: I don't plead guilty to that statement. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> who made the statement? I think like, I who, made
1: the statement. I made the statement and right. it, it was in, it was part of that Economist article I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, if you look at, okay, they're not getting as many stock listings, uh, you know, plus Brexit, you know, which actually, you know, people were people were thinking, oh, you know, how many financial firms are going to relocate staff out of London? Well, it appears that there actually has been a decent amount of uh, relocation to, I don't know whether it's Frankfurt or Paris or, you know, a couple of the of the Netherlands cities. Um, although I haven't tracked it as closely, perhaps as you have, uh, Princey or Bruce. So my, my perception is that, London obviously became enormous as a center for finance and truly became the center of finance for not only Europe, but environs and and clearly among the top three globally and perhaps the top financial city globally. Um, and so, yeah, my question is, what do you think? Do you think that in, that endures? Do you think the network effect is so strong? Do you think that there's so much talent? And so much, uh, you know, so many great things about uh, about living in the UK that that just persists and endures for the foreseeable future. What's your, what do you think?
2: I I think that the UK has its advantages and disadvantages. I actually think that financial business has become so global that it really doesn't matter where the key thinkers are. Um, There's an awful lot of administration that is very well handled in places like Bournemouth and Manchester that probably won't move because the JP Morgans and other of this world have got huge numbers of staff there. But in terms of where the real thinking goes on, it's always been all over the world. I mean, the best conferences in a particular field in finance might be in New York, they might be in Singapore, they might be in Melbourne, they might be in London, they might be in Frankfurt. I mean, I just think that it's been a global business since the mid 80s. And and I guess it's going to continue. I don't think it matters too much where the desks are. Actually, a lot of my friends aren't going back to their desks, which is another interesting point. Uh, I know at least five people who have decided they're going to work from home, even though they're senior VPs in the likes of Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Um,
1: Okay. I mostly work from home now at this point. I don't, I don't commute into the office very much at all. What you said about it matters even less where people are located. My sense is that's not great for London, right? I mean, my sense is that if you can do your job and not have to pay an eye-watering amount to live right in the city, I think a lot of people are gonna, are gonna take that trade if they can.
2: Yeah, I, I think the same could be said of Manhattan. Uh, what I think yeah. is the issue is, I think we're going to see increasingly global businesses but also, I think we're going to see increasingly less secure firms. I mean, I, I, if DeFi does anything, it's going to be that it makes it possible for a group of people to come together for two or three years to do a project and then reform elsewhere. And possibly while they're working on that project, they may be working on two other projects. Are they going to be called Goldman Sachs or KPMG? No, they're not. They're going to be called, you know, Fred and Friends. And Fred and Friends may become Joe and Friends or Jenny and Friends in a few months' time that's DeFi to me that's what's exciting it's it's the breakdown so you know the three of us are miles apart collaborating together on this talk why shouldn't we could be collaborating on a bond issue
0: amen mm-hmm. and let's do it all on bitcoin okay do it all right andy uh, i don't want to keep you any longer sorry i asked that one so late but uh yes um been great to to see you again mate and uh, all the best of luck with swan and please if you haven't picked up andy's book go and buy why buy bitcoin it's perfect especially for this kind of um marketplace i think i think it's the best book to hand around a trading floor i appreciate your kind words daniel
2: and from me if anybody wants to chat my dms are open on twitter Um, i enjoy talking to people who've got challenges and questions and will happily do so
0: excellent Great, guys. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay. Thank you. Everyone, thank you so much for listening to Bruce and Andy sharing their insights and their visions for the future and how we should be interacting with Bitcoin and not taking too many risks. Please take their advice. And please take control of your coins. Please get a hardware wallet. If you haven't done that yet, you've got to do it. This is just one of the bitcoiny things you have to do to get self-sovereign and interact with this asset use the bitbox02 bitcoin only edition hardware wallet from shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bits and we'll get you five percent discount on everything in your basket now bruce and andy i really appreciate you coming on fellas that was a brilliant rip there were probably another two hours that we could have gone on just chatting and shooting the breeze so i'll probably have to get you back another time now Another pleb service announcement. At the Bitcoin conference this year, there is going to be a live auction, which I can only imagine is going to be super fun. And you will probably see up close and personal some ridiculous whale behavior with people making huge bids for artifacts. Get yourself a ticket. Use the link in the show notes or use code BITTON at checkout to get 10% off your tickets. You will be fully refunded if you cannot travel due to COVID restrictions, but you will also be able to transfer your ticket and sell them on to another pleb who's dying to go closer to the time. So please also go follow Andy, go follow Bruce, buy Andy's book, Why Buy Bitcoin, it's an absolutely brilliant read. And please check out the show sponsors, you know who they are, swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. Head over to coincorner.com and use the code BITTON to get a free £10 and a free $10 in the case of SWAN. And for Relay, stack across Europe, relay.ch forward slash BITTON will save on commission. Thank you everybody for listening. I really appreciate you. Thanks. This is still part of the wall of content. This was episode 200. I look forward to the next 200.